In this episode of the Project Mindfulness Podcast, we talk about mindfulness and psychology. How does it help us regulate emotions or affect our memory? Honest and open to all religions, all traditions, all ages, and all levels of experience. Radically accessible, pragmatic, and eye-opening. Simply for everyone. Welcome to the Project Mindfulness Podcast. We'll take you on a journey across the globe and talk with other meditators about their practice, the lessons they have learned, and what they want the world to know. Good day and welcome. This is episode 25, and I'm Christian Neitesson. Thank you for joining us. Today, I have a talk with Robert Goodman, assistant professor at Northern Arizona University. Robert is a psychologist who examines the neurological, behavioral, and psychosocial consequences of mindfulness. In this episode, we talk about the influence of mindfulness on memory, regulating emotions, and aging-related memory decline. I'm sure this talk will help you understand why mindfulness is so important for each and every one of us. Today, we're talking with Rob Goodman about mindfulness and psychology, and joining me on the podcast is Tim Schofield. Tim, welcome. Hi, Christian. Hi, Rob. So, Rob, thank you very much for uh, joining me today on the podcast. Happy to talk to you. It's my pleasure. Awesome. So, um, Rob, just to dive into it and let our uh, listeners know, who are you and what do you do in life? Sure. Um, well, uh, so professionally, I'm a professor of psychology, uh, more specifically uh, social neuroscience. So basically study how situational factors um, influence thoughts, feelings, and behavior, uh, particularly uh, at the level of the brain. Um, and my primary focus uh, has been on mindfulness meditation and particularly how uh, early Buddhist styles of mindfulness meditation uh, influence the brain and, and how people uh, interact with each other in social situations, how they handle their emotions how it influences their memory. Um, so professionally, that's, that's what I do. Um, outside of my profession, I have a variety of different hobbies. I like uh, long-distance backpacking. Um, it's kind of like a retreat. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, you know, I'm into tech and, and, and uh, that kind of stuff as well. So That's cool. And, and so now I'm, I'm wondering... Like, how did you die or like, how did you encounter Buddhism and meditation? When did that happen? Well, it happened. I mean, it started around 1998. Um, I was getting a degree in computer science and I was minoring in uh, philosophy and I came across uh, a philosopher slash social psychologist named Eric Fromm. And uh, he was uh, very ripe for my uh, youth. Uh, you know, I was kind of an angsty type uh, person. And Eric Fromm, his early works uh, uh, really focused on uh, humanism and um, the, the problems with capitalism and, and these types of issues. And it struck a chord with me. But what, so what happens, I took a deep dive and um, began reading every book I could get my hands on from him. And the arc of his profession, uh, he started out very um, uh, uh, kind of uh, social warrior, you know, trying to promote, uh, you know, uh, promote things like socialism and, and talk about how capitalism was bad. But it progressed into, um, you know, by the end of his life, he was uh, basically using Buddhism in psychotherapy. And he was actually uh, the first person to bring over D.T. Suzuki uh, to the United States. He wrote the foreword for Nayana Panikkara's The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. Um, so it was through that, it was kind of unexpected. And of course, along the way, I got into practice and that was the real transformation. Um, and wow. yeah, that's how it all started. 
that's a yeah, that's quite a journey. I think it's funny because um, I, for instance, I have friends who uh, at a certain age got into a a, a certain self improvement or self something that is more about reflecting on yourself. And from that, now in the end, some of them are into meditation. It's funny how um, it seems to lead to a certain path for a lot of us. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, and so day to day, what, 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 what is your practice? Like, do you have a certain routine or, or, or morning meditation that you run through? Is there a certain uh, teaching or tradition that you follow? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm of the mindset that, uh, you know, there's no necessarily one right path, uh, that, that, that everyone kind of finds what, uh, works for them and it, it may change like everything else. Uh, but, uh, currently and in, in for the last, I'd say nine or 10 years, I've been very invested in practicing, uh, Satipatthana style. So um, going through the different sequences of the four foundations of mindfulness. So often I'll start by doing, uh, you know, basic settling in mindfulness of, of breathing, uh, mindfulness of, of the whole body, expanding awareness to the whole body, and then kind of enter into uh, like scanning anatomical parts, elements, uh, mortality. Um, so it's uh, it's, I'd say my style of practice really anchors on, um, using model awareness to confront, um, the existential dilemmas we all face. So use, using mindfulness as a way to be with things that could be, uh, uncomfortable and, uh, exploring those types of emotions and, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Like, uh, I feel like after doing those types of practice practices, uh, it's as if there's like a monkey that's uh, taken off your back that you didn't even know was there. Right. So I feel like a lot of the stress and, and um, things that we have in our life kind of fall under the, the surface of our conscious awareness. And that these Satipatthana-style practices can bring up some of those deeply rooted uh, concerns and anxieties uh, in a context that's healthy to work with them. Uh, so in a sense, it, it, it's, it's similar, I would say, uh, particularly the first Satipatthana, um, or the first foundation of mindfulness, working with the body. Um, it's uh, very similar to exposure therapy. Oh, that's interesting. So for you as a, a person right now in your job, is it to combine this sort of Eastern philosophy and this uh, mindfulness and meditation that you found there with the Western psychology? Is that an accurate way to describe it? Um, I don't, I, the tools of Western psychology, sure. Um, I, I feel um, that... Uh, you know, the, the reason I think I, I place uh, a bunch of emphasis on the early Buddhist actualizations uh, of mindfulness is that, you know, we're, we're kind of in a conundrum in the, in the West, and not just the West, but, I mean, Buddhism as a whole, you're, you're dealing with a pluralistic tradition that spans, you know, many, many centuries. And in the West, you have perspectives on mindfulness that are... Uh, informed by a variety of different goals. Uh, one predominant one being uh, clinical treatment. Um, so incorporate mindfulness with clinical treatment. And so when you ask a, a Buddhist or when you ask a psychologist in the West, what is mindfulness? You can ask five people and get 15 different answers. Um, and, and so I think from a scientific perspective, this poses a, a, a very big challenge to mindfulness research because we have to be able to operationally define the constructs that we're working with. And um, given that there's a, you know, uh, uh, a whole palette of, of different meanings of mindfulness across different traditions, 
I thought it would be best to pick one and be specific about the types of psychological processes that it's purported to influence. Um, so, so yeah, that's, uh, you know, the agenda is certainly not uh, to, to go out and prove early Buddhism as being true. Uh, in fact, uh, more often than not, uh, I'm finding lack of evidence in certain things um, that, that would be predicted by early Buddhism. And that's just as informative. Um, so. Yeah, um, I mean, looking at, for instance, Western psychology and the way it developed, there was, um, uh, I have to say it right, I think it was um, William James who talked about introspection. You have to correct me there um, if it was not William James. Uh, but um, yeah, he, he, uh, he really uh, talked about introspection. And, and I think the early roots of psychology in also Western culture they have a lot of, of this mindfulness influence, but it just got kicked out because it wasn't statistically, uh, you couldn't, they couldn't work with it, right? That, that was the idea why it got out uh, of our whole uh, curriculum. And now it's coming back, luckily, but it, it got out because they, they felt like, yeah, but we can't, you know, prove it. We can't statistically like show that it it's like uh, having effect on this and that. And I think, um, I, I'm very happy that it's 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 now returning to our our um, world, so to say, in our our view on psychology. But I wonder, it, is there something lost about mindfulness in the way that we approach it now in the West? Um, yeah, I mean, I I think it depends on the perspective uh, of of the person in the West, uh, mm. certainly uh, there's a distinction in, in the, the intention of mindfulness whenever you're trying to get people who are at a minus one to a zero, taking people who are suffering from psychological disorders and getting them to, quote, normal, right? Uh, that's very, has a very different flavor from mindfulness of going from somewhat normal to duration. And um, I think one thing that's missing there is the emphasis on uh, ethics and the importance of ethics uh, as a foundational support for all meditation practice. Um, you don't see much uh, emphasis on ethics and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy infused with mindfulness, for example. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So um, to link back to your work, how would you define mindfulness in uh, psychology? Um, so the, the definition that, that I personally work with? Yeah, yeah. So really, yeah, exactly. The one you work with and you find that rings true to the work you do. So um, I would say, Say, you know, uh, uh, the, the easy answer would be it's a broad, open, equanimous, and receptive awareness of present moment experience. Um, however, I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, oftentimes uh, mindfulness kind of gets conflated with just attention in general. I think mindfulness represents a particularly a particular quality of attention. Uh, uh, you know, in contrast to attentional focus, where we're um, anchoring our attention on some type of object and sustaining attention on it, uh, I see mindfulness as this broader capacity, a meta awareness that acknowledges and can keep track of the current state of the mind. So, uh, mindfulness is this more broad um, receptivity to change. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, actually being with the change in the present moment, including the change in your own mind. And so mindfulness is that thing that can kind of bring us back when our mind goes astray. Um, so uh, I, I feel also that there's uh, a, a value uh, in, in mindfulness in terms of the 
this equanimity type of concept where um, the the way that our mind reacts to pleasant and unpleasant experiences is reduced, right? So rather than, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, from a Buddhist perspective to like clinging, uh, the idea of clinging and um, always trying to get what we want and avoid what we don't want. I feel, um, you know, that is absolutely central, uh, particularly in early Buddhist conceptualizations is that, um, you know, and, and it goes to an extreme in early Buddhist uh, conceptualizations in that you're trying to endogenously kind of generate unpleasant things precisely be with them and not avoid them. Um, and, uh, and to notice the, the subtle joy of, of the present moment that's always there, you fail to recognize. Um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, this equanimity aspect it's 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 similar to the the non-judgment um i think i think in the west the the, the term non-judgment awareness while that's accurate particularly for people who are beginning to start a practice i feel we have to be very careful with that word because it could easily be argued that uh the, the point of mindfulness is to judge things in terms of whether or not they will lead to future suffering or not. And so uh, maybe a better word would be discernment, right? But uh, when we're talking about non-judgment, I don't, I don't think that necessarily means um, that we're not actively making distinctions between things and judging things as good or bad but that um, the age of awareness is open to any experience and that we are, we allow any, any, anything that's happening experience without judgment. Um, so I, I would say if, if we're, you know, that, that non-judgment aspect, very similar to equanimity. Um, but I, I, I think the term non-judgment has been um, frequently uh, misunderstood in that. So would you say that in, in your view that mindfulness occupies a space in the treatment arena that is more preventative in terms of, for want of a better phrase, like a, a brain training process rather than something that's, I mean, I guess it can be both, right? But maybe more preventative than something that's direct action, right? I mean, I know there are obvious immediate effects of meditation uh, and there are apps out there certainly i've seen that say have you know meditations geared towards people who are uh, let's say in the midst of a panic attack but w is it your view that that the effects the long-term changes to to um, our view of our experience or you know outweigh those more immediate effects in in the sense of treatment is that is that a fair characterization um, well, I mean, I, I, I'd like to, to disclose, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that I am not a clinical psychologist. No, no, I understand. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not well versed in, in the clinical treatment. However, um, I would say there's certainly, um, a distinction between the type of mindfulness that's used to, um, to adaptive deal with an oncoming panic attack and uh, the type of mindfulness that uh, makes uh, acknowledge the impermanence of everything or of uh, the, the illusory nature of our identity. Um, uh, the, the deep, I, at least for me, what, what I find to be the, the deep spiritual Revelations, revelations are um, not as emphasized. So, like a good example, of this, uh, and again, there's um, uh, there, there's no criticism. I'm not criticizing uh, Western clinical approaches to mind. I think tremendously beneficial, um, but there's a distinction. Um, so, for example. Um, uh, 
I a, a bit earlier about this Satipatthana meditation, the four foundations of mindfulness as described um, in the Majjhima Nikaya of, of Buddhism. Uh, that structure was the blueprint for mindfulness-based stress reduction. It starts with the body, and then you work with feelings, you work with full-blown emotional states, and um, and uh, but the flavor is different. So, so for example, in in mindfulness-based stress reduction, we scan the body, right? We notice sensations in the body, and sensations of touch or pressure or tingling or warmth, um, and and that can take a, a, a variety of different uh, forms. Uh, however, in, in Buddhism, when working with the body, um, you're scanning the body, but you're scanning the body um, in, 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 in a different way, right? So the, the first contemplation in Satipatthana on the body is commonly translated as mindfulness of the foulness of the body. And it starts by examining, um, going through and essentially visualizing. I mean, you are, you can, you know, feel certain things, but this, this is not necessary, right? It's about seeing that, um, you know, you start things that are typically like the, the hair, the eyes, the skin, uh, the teeth, um, things that we typically identify with and consider to be ourselves. And then that scan progresses through to more neutral things and ends up scanning the contents of your intestines and um, the, you know, these, these kinds of things. And, and acknowledging that um, it's not that any of, the, or any of them are bad. It's about practicing that equanimity and that balance. Um, in that practice. But so you can see here that those two exercises, despite, despite that MBSR is based on, on the Satipatthana scheme, the, the flavor and, and the intention I feel that, uh, that those practices has is quite unique. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And coming from that, how does, uh, mindfulness influence the way we experience and uh, regulate uh, our emotions. Well, um, so that's an area that that I've kind of been uh, focusing in my research for a while, and it's been taking some interesting turns recently. But basically, um, you know, it it kind of starts understanding. Um, the way that uh, emotions arise in our experience from a psychological perspective. So in, in the 70s, there was a, a model of stress called the Lazarus Folkman Transactional Model of Stress. And this, this, uh, this model suggests is that um, the reason stress arises is because uh, of our relationship to experience so basically if, if I encounter some some uh, thing that's potentially meaningful to me I I would make an appraisal a very rapid appraisal not a thought but a very very pre-conscious kind of judgment basically say is this threatening or not and if my if, if, if I identify something as threatening then a secondary appraisal is made. And that secondary appraisal is basically, um, can I handle this right now? Um, and if it's a threat and I feel like I'm not capable of handling it, that's when the stress response emerges. So if you take that Lazarus Folk model and you kind of embed it into more modern theories of emotion generation and emotion regulation, it gets uh, paints an in picture. So, um, a pr one predominant model of uh, how emotions are generated is called uh, the modal model by James Gross. And this model suggests that you know it goes in four steps. The first step 
as we encounter some psychologically relevant situation. The second step is that we we deploy our attention to that uh, situation in a particular way. Third step is that we make an appraisal, right? These are the same types of appraisals as just discussed in this Lazarus-Folkman model. And then following that appraisal, we experience an emotion congruent with uh, that appraisal. And so it's interesting because the modal model suggests that you can regulate emotions at basically any of those four stages. So for example, we could regulate the emotion at the level of the response. So, so say it was, um, I was at a grocery store and someone, I was getting ready to check out and someone cut in front of me. Well, I regulate my emotion. I could get angry, right? And then just kind of use total self-control to restrain myself and not engage in, um, in socially unacceptable behavior. <laughs> um, now, now, now that, that's, uh, that's very effortful and depleting if you do that all the time. Uh, another way that, that you could regulate it is at the level of the appraisal, right? So you realize this situation. You could say, um, oh, well, maybe I didn't think, even though I'm angry, maybe, maybe I, I should consider that this person might have a sick child at home and they didn't even know that they cut in front of me. And so I can kind of go back and revise that appraisal to, to dampen the intensity of that emotional response. And that's, that, that's great, but it's also effortful. So if we go back further to the level of attention, right? Most of the research on using attention to modulate emotions is focused on distraction and particularly um, focused on the negative long-term consequence of action. So by not paying attention, by, you know, just turning and looking at the magazines and, 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 and kind of suppressing that up, upset and emotion, uh, that can be damaging in the long term. In the short term, it can be effective. But a lot of my work has focused on how uh, it's that, that distraction might not be the only way that by fully being present um, moment to moment, that can have uh, a transformative effect on the way that we appraise things. And that appraisal is what causes those negative emotions to arise in the first place. So it's how you pay attention that matters. Mm. And so, um, so we're showing this um, using a variety of different paradigms. The predominant one is using uh, electroencephalography. Uh, and we have people basically look at a variety of different types of images. And the images vary in terms of how pleasant or unpleasant they are and um, how intense they are, how arousing they are. And what we found, um, initially the evidence is mixed, but um, seven studies later, we're finding that um, that people who tend to be more mindful or people who go through an intensive mindfulness training or people who are induced with uh, state mindfulness, uh, short-term training, that whenever they see these um, uncomfortable images, um, pictures of burn victims, uh, uh, various violence, uh, things like this, that their attention is actually, they recruit more attentional forces. And that attention is sustained on those, uh, those stimuli for a long duration. But after the fact, when you ask the people, you know, how upsetting was it? They say it was less upsetting, right? So, hmm. um, so, so what we're showing is that at a neurological level and linking neurological activity to their self-reported experience, we're kind of showing that, um, how you pay attention matters and that there's a value in not turning away from uncomfortable things 
and, and simply being with them as a means to regulate your emotional experience. This has had some, uh, an interesting turn recently started investigating um, specific, one specific emotion that has some pretty interesting implications, and that's the emotion of disgust. So um, disgust is, is an emotion that, you know, it keeps us away potential sources of contamination and disease, right? So, um, and this is great, right? It, uh, you know, if, if we did not have the disgust response, we'd be putting all kinds of gross stuff in our mouth and we would constantly have to activate our physiological immune system, right? Yeah. So this, this kind of psychological mechanism of the disgust response keeps us away from, from that stuff. However, it's kind of neurologically become intertwined with areas involved in um, our, our interpersonal uh, relationships. So, for example, um, if you think to our evolutionary ancestors who were wandering around in small nomadic groups, one potential source of contamination and disease that they faced were outgroups, other groups of people who potentially had immunities to diseases that they didn't have. And, and so we started becoming disgusted by people who look different from us, who talk different from us. And, and this plays a very key role in this. So study after study demonstrates that um, both correlationally and causally using experimental manipulations of disgust, that disgust leads people to have more negative attitudes and prejudice towards outgroups, a variety of different outgroups. And so we know that mindfulness tends to promote pro-social behavior, right? It, it tends to make people more inclusive. Right. Maybe emotion regulation has plays a key role and that another benefit of, of using mindfulness as a way to regulate emotional experience is that it makes people more pro-social and less prejudiced. So we've done some more. We had people go through a pretty intensive mindfulness uh, retreat type setting. And specifically, they work, they practice in the four foundations of mindfulness, right? The, the Satipatthana scheme, where they worked every day on scanning the body and eliciting a disgust response in meditation practice and attending to that over and over. And what we found is that not, we, we, we replicate findings from before showing that people who are, uh, who receive mindfulness training relative to controls that, yeah, they, they, they deployed their attention to these disgusting stimuli for a much longer duration and at a greater intensity. And after the fact, they said, yeah, that wasn't that disgusting. But, but more importantly, we found their neurological response to these disgusting stimuli the amount of change that occurred over training from pre, pre-treatment to post-treatment um, in the mindfulness group, that, that, um, the, the change in their neural response to disgust predicted greater interpersonal warmth towards outgroup members like transgender people. So this suggests, you know, that, that mind can help people regulate their emotions um, by acting on attention. But there are also other downstream consequences that uh, are particularly adaptive in social situations from that enhanced regulation. The, the increase in the pro-social aspect as well, I find really interesting. I know that um, we've seen headlines here in the UK years ago now, but where there was... Um, sort of a belief that mindfulness was almost this kind of navel gazing exercise right where actually it's perhaps not a focus on awareness but it's also it's almost just looking inside yourself and 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 just almost becoming a bit self-obsessed and there was um talk about how potentially it could actually increase 
self-centeredness and selfishness, but actually that seems completely at odds with this idea of increased empathy, right? Yes, yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. So we, we actually recently published a paper last year um, in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General um, and it, it, it showed that using a variety of short-term, I mean, very short-term uh, mindfulness inductions, right? So we basically in undergraduates and have them do 10 minutes of mindfulness. And then we had them uh, play a game where uh, certain people in the game are ostracized. They're, like it's a ball toss game. It's called Cyberball. And they throw they throw the ball back and forth, but one person gets ostracized. And we were interested in how the people who receive the mindfulness induction would treat the uh, the, the person who was ostracized later. And and we we had a hypothesis. So there's there's a variety of different things going on. So with mindfulness, someone could be experiencing empathic anger, which would be Basically, I'm angry that those people ostracize this person. It's not fair. Another type would be empathic distress, right? Where you know you're you're feeling very distressed by a person being ostracized. You're personally feeling that distress. And a third would be empathic concern, which is um, less of a focus and more focused on. Um, the well-being of the person who is ostracized, right? So, the, you know, similar to a compassionate response, right? Um, or, uh, the key here is that there's less self-focus with empathic concern. And we found that this very brief 10-minute mindfulness training over the course of four studies, um, mindfulness or to caused people to experience more empathic concern for the victim of ostracism, but not empathic stress or uh, pain. Wow. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, in our community, we're reading uh, from Robert Wright, Why Buddhism is True, which is a lot about the connection of feelings and, and thoughts and especially feelings and what they how they served us in evolution and how they sometimes not serve us anymore now, uh, so to say. And it seems that feelings really hold uh, a certain key to being very um, reactionary to things versus allowing space um, and choosing your reaction or, or maybe not cho choosing is not the right word, but to, you know what I mean, to have a, to, to not react out of a reactionary field, which to me always comes from emotion. Like if I look at my personal life, it always it's always emotion <laughs> that makes me react too fast and it gets me into trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, ab absolutely. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, back in in the in the sixties and seventies. The idea in psychology was that uh, we felt emotions as a consequence of higher order thought and, co and other cognitive processes. But um, it, it, was, it wasn't until the, the very early 80s, I believe, I could be wrong on the date, I think it was 1981, when a, a, a psychologist, uh, Robert Zients, he proposed that you know, actually affect and higher order cognitive processes are, are orthogonal and that oftentimes affect is prime and it comes first. Um, and you can see this in a lot of, uh, they call them moral dumbfounding uh, example, right? So Jonathan Haidt uh, has a whole, whole body of literature on this where uh, Basically, you pose a situation, you read one uh, a, a situation that is going to upset them and that they're, they're guaranteed to think this is wrong and immoral. Um, but, but the situation's constructed in such a way that, that there's no defensible logical reason um, to say that what they did was wrong based on reason alone. 
And so it, it, it highlights, right, that, that people are, are that, 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 that the emotions are in the driver's seat in terms of our uh, moral decision-making and, um, and moral intuitions. So I, I think emotions uh, are, are and, and even in the Buddhist scheme, in the early Buddhist scheme, you know, you, you look at the, the four Satipatthanas, right, and you've got, you work with the body first, this, the next one is Vedna, or, or uh, essentially, it's uh, a very immediate, effective tone of experience, right? Not a full-blown emotion, but is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral right now? And then those drop to these higher-order cognitive processes, like our thoughts, our full-blown emotions, things like that. So Buddhists had down, you know, 2,500 years ago. Uh, it took psychologists until the 1980s. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's super interesting. I, I love that too. That's really what um, grabbed me about Buddhism is that you you find so many things that just work and they just make sense, but they don't make sense because you believe them. They make sense because you you apply them to your life and long enough um, you observe the effects of that. I love that about it. It's very, it's very pragmatic. And I'm not talking necessarily about Buddhism as a whole, because of course it evolved through uh, cultures and, and traditions, but I think the core message is very, very pragmatic. Uh, something I really enjoy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Going from emotions to the memory, some of your work also looks at um, memory and episodic memory and uh, if mindfulness affects the content and accuracy of our uh, episodic memory. Is that correct? And, and what could you say about that? Yeah, um, so that's, a, that's been a very fun line of work. So that, that, that work started... Um, I was uh, attending the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute. So Mind and Life Institute uh, organization, it's uh, between Western scientists and Dalai Lama, and they fund a lot of uh, research and contemplative studies. And um, I was there, and I was there specifically to, uh, to meet with uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Anil, who's... He's he wrote the book Satipatthana: The Direct Path to Realization and Perspectives on Satipatthana. He's PhD um, at University of Hamburg, and so I met him, and it was uh, a great interaction. This, this work where he kind of came out of that interaction, where um, you know, in in the in the early canonical. Um, the historical Buddha, when asked to describe mindfulness, said, you know, they would say, what, what is this capacity of mindfulness? And he, mindfulness is the capacity that allows one to bring to mind things that were said and done even long ago. And so that clearly is a episodic memory. Um, but uh, in, in fact, even the word in, in Pali, the word uh, for mindfulness is sati, and that is translated quite directly as to remember, right? Now, this isn't to say that mindfulness is memory, right? It's uh, probably better understood as uh, by being aware of the present that sets up the processes for one to remember things more effectively, right? Right, um, yeah. But uh, so that, that, I mean, that's a, it's just in general, um, that's a great thing about studying attention is it's such a domain general low order process that it affects a ton of different outcomes. So for example, um, you know, we don't remember things we don't pay attention to. Yeah. Right. And uh, what we have in memory also determines what we will pay attention to in the future. And so we were interested in whether or not um, there was a, a general episodic memory enhancement among people who uh, were high in mindfulness and living or people um, 
received a very brief, you know, 10 minute mindfulness uh, meditation exercise. And what, what we, what we were looking at is, you know, some of this research in, in memory um, distinguishes between two neurally dissociable types of episodic memory. One is called recognition memory. It's also referred to as remembering in some contexts, but recognition is this, this capacity to kind of mentally travel back in time and relive an experience that we had in the past. This relies on cell, uh, that you, you, there's a requirement that there's a self there's a requirement that there is a perspective of time and one has to be able to locate themselves back in time in order to experience this remembering uh, phenomenon. Another, um, another one is called familiarity. familiarity. And um, some people call it knowing. There's kind of two separate bodies of literature. They call, call these two features different things. But So familiarity is just what it sounds like. It's this kind of gut feeling of, I know, I know I've seen this before, right? So just, just to illustrate the distinction with, with an example, like say you went, we'll use a grocery store again because it's convenient, right? <laughs> <laughs> say you went into a grocery store and you're, you're shopping and someone comes up and they tap you on the shoulder and you turn around and you're like, oh, yeah. That's, that's Sally. I met Sally last week at a party. We were talking about politics and la da 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 right? You can remember all of the contextual details, the room that you were in, you were feeling at the time, you know, that kind of stuff. But, so that's, that's more remembering. But knowing is if they tap you on the shoulder and, and you turn around and you're like, oh, I, I know I know this person but I don't know where I met them. I don't remember their name. All that contextual detail is lost. And so um, these are two both neurologically distinct phenomenon and they feel subjectively unique in our experience. And so we had people, um, we've done a, a couple studies at this point, um, recently published one where uh, you know, we, we were able to demonstrate uh, in two studies that uh, this brief mindfulness training actually significantly increased uh, people's ability to engage in remembering relative to knowing, right? So mindfulness, by, by just a 10-minute mindfulness exercise, people were able to remember details much more accurately in the contextual details than, um, than uh, control people. And this effect didn't emerge for this familiarity sensation. So uh, we've collected other data. It's not been analyzed completely yet. We're in the process, but where we gave people eight weeks of mindfulness-based stress reduction training. And we're looking at whether we can replicate this effect among aging adults who are at heightened risk for mild cognitive impairment, which is a, it's a mild cognitive impairment is a transitionary phase between normal aging related cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. So, so people who are diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment are at substantial increased likelihood of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's within a two year period. So we're, we're looking at whether or not um, this mindfulness training using MBSR might influence uh, neurological markers of episodic memory performance and uh, among a population that would be likely to benefit from this. Wow, that's uh, super interesting. So that there's... Um... I mean, talking about, you know, memory and, and the short-term memory going through the, so to say, long-term memory and, and the sort of the glue bet between that is, is focus and, and, and attention. It's like where, where you're, as you said, where you put your attention on, you're, you're more likely to remember. I mean, we all know that from studying is that uh, if 
if you don't pay attention, you're not going to remember then. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's, uh, it, for me, it's really amazing to, to find that the longer you practice uh, mindfulness and meditation, the more it feels like you can direct your awareness in ways that you couldn't before. And it's, it's of course, very hard to sort of, you know, put that into a, 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 a solid statement. But from experience, I can tell that um, it seems definitely like that. Like you can definitely redirect your awareness in a way that you couldn't before because some of those automatic responses that first controlled you or controlled your attention are way less like strong. They're, they're, they're not that, yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Yeah, and, and so actually we, you talked a little bit about, um, so to say, seniors who can really benefit from this. And I had another question come up from uh, someone who asked, uh, could mindfulness training be applied to seniors and buffer aging-related memory um, and, and that's really, uh, sorry, memory decline. I didn't finish that sentence. So uh, be, be applied to seniors and buffer aging related memory decline. And that's, that's, that's shortly what you tapped into, right? It's, it's, you talked about how, how it can help them. And I mean, that's incredible, right? If that will really work that um, they can stay with us longer in memory, so to say. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, um, you know, we're, uh, it's, 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 it's very interesting. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've had the opportunity to do two of these studies with aging adults. None of the data is analyzed yet on the memory side. Um, but they're a particular joy to work with, uh, seniors. They've, they've got, um, they put their mind to it. And I think one of the, you know, one of the, the challenges that scientists face when working with, with mindfulness training is um, most people always have something better to do. <laughs> right? Yeah. And even if, you, even if you get them on the cushion, you don't know what are they doing in there? <laughs> Right. I mean, yeah, makes sense. That they, you can say, you can say, I'm just going to daydream for 30 minutes until this is over. Right. And you have no way of knowing. Yeah. No way to measure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So th this makes it very challenging. Um, and I feel like, and, I, and again, I, I have no data to back this up, but I do get the sense when working with aging adults that they actually are really trying um, and, and they're really curious about where this is going and, um, you know, they're, they're motivated to, to be healthy and they know that, that, uh, there's some science backing this. It makes them, it, it makes them a very, very good population I find to work with and they stand to benefit tremendously. Mm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They, they have a. A good schedule to work with, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the the, the benefits of, of mindfulness. And um, I wonder, are there any downsides to mindfulness? Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, I would say that... that um, I don't say that. I think that uh, this is going to sound out of left field, but I feel like mindfulness shares a lot in common with um, or contemplative practice in general has, has a lot in common with like uh, psychedelics, for example, that um, psychedelics can be really transformative for people. They can also be tremendously damaging to certain people. And I think mindfulness um, 
is the same way. Now, it depends on what you mean by mindfulness, right? Going back to the beginning about the, the confusion in, in, in terms of what that word means. I think there's a big difference. I, I don't think that many people would be harmed by going to a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. They could. But I think that some, some major issues can arise after long-term practice, right? So, uh, and, and, and there's been some research on now. Um, we've written at a Brown University in a study she called, uh, you know, the dark night of the soul, which is um, about how a lot of very long-term, very, very well-practiced um, people will experience psychologically debilitating response, um, not being able to walk, um, just going psychotic. But th again, this is after, you know, three month long meditation retreats for years. Mm. Um, and I mean, that's some deep work. So I feel you're, 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 you're gonna, you're gonna strike, strike some uncomfortable nerves at some point on any journey that you're, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's a difficult question. Uh, is there anything wrong, anything bad about mindfulness? Well, is there anything bad about your sense of smell or your vision or your sense of touch? What's, what's bad about yeah. being able to see? Yeah, it, 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 if I can um, um, jump in there, I feel that also, as you said, with defining mindfulness, there seems to be a lot lost sometimes in translation, literally between uh, a teacher or a person trying to tell someone how to practice something and the person then practicing it. There can be a lot, because as you said, you can't literally see what they're doing inside their mind. And... Um, wrongful appliance of, of mindfulness um, it must be damaging because you can do I mean your mind is capable of a lot so. yeah. right yeah. yeah yeah no I think that's an important distinction this idea of wrong mindfulness um, so so for like and this is a one fundamental distinction between early Buddhism and um, later for versions of Buddhism. So when I say early Buddhism, let me define that. Um, I do not mean Theravada Buddhism. I mean, so when Buddhism spread across Asia, right, in Southeast Asia, there are lineages that we have the full canonical or, or at least partial uh, canonical documents from them. And there, there are three or four, three, three primary ones, um, two in China and then the, the Theravadans. And when you compare their canonical documents, you can see where they diverge from each other and what they have in common. And so the study of, the study of early Buddhism is about sticking with this kind of central theme that all of them have in common. And it's important to keep in mind that these, these traditions, the canonical documents were originated and they were passed down by memory. Um, and they're very, very, very similar. Uh, they almost read identical, even even though that they were separated geographically for over 500 years, right? Um, but but one distinction between the Theravadins and these other earlier traditions is this idea of wrong mindfulness. So the Theravadin tradition would say that you cannot have wrong mindfulness; that mindfulness is inherently pure and it cannot coexist with any type of hindrance or defilement, right? So uh, you cannot be angry and mindful at the same time, according to a Theravadan Buddhist perspective. And they get around this by saying that the mind has these discrete moments 
and that you can jump forth between a moment of mindfulness and a moment of anger and a moment of mindfulness and a moment of anger. That position isn't as, uh, that doesn't exist in these other traditions. In fact, there's documentation, uh, literature about how it, it's possible to uh, have wrong mindfulness, mindfulness that is not rooted in proper ethics. And that it's not an inherently pure thing. And from a purely personal experience, I mean, looking back, I'm not sure my first sort of year of meditating was, was correct, so to speak. You know, in, in, in what I've learned now, looking back, I, I probably would have said differently at the time, but I, I've personally got to believe that there are, there are wrong ways of doing it, I think. Sure. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. That also resonates with me. I am. Um... I had moments where I really forced myself to uh, uh, practice meditation and then also practice it for a longer time. I even had times where I try to uh, have no thoughts, <laughs> which is the classic <laughs> beginner mistake, but <laughs> I was a beginner, so I made that mistake. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, Think thoughts away. <laughs> I think that's important, uh, a very important mistake that everyone makes. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's, I learned a lot from that. I learned that, first of all, it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, second of all, it's, it's still a thought that you want to keep the thoughts away. So it's, it's, it's sort of self, uh, yeah. But um, I think, uh, Tim, do you, do you still have a one pressing question? Because I feel that um, we covered a lot and... No, I, I, you know, the, the, the stuff that I was really interested in was like the pro-social stuff. We, we covered that. I, I, I'm, I'm really happy with, with what we've gone through personally. Yeah. So as a last question, I, I want to ask you, like, what would you give as an advice to anyone listening who maybe just started with meditation, with mindfulness, and, and they're looking into it? What, what, what helped you to um, progress, so to say? Well, um, oh, that's a that's a challenging question. Ending on a big one. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so, for for someone who's just beginning, um, I mean, I think I think where where the shift. So, I, I teach a, a a senior capstone class at at my university on mindfulness and meditation, and it, it's. Uh, 16 weeks of mindfulness practice. And so I've, I've had the opportunity to, to see a lot of the challenges that people make kind of coming out of the gate. And I, I think my first advice would be um, to be very cautious um, in terms of where you receive your instruction. Because uh, there's a lot of mindfulness out there. Um, and not that it would do any harm, but I feel like mine uh, is not always what people th think it is. And then it's important to have a reliable source of information to at least get you started on the right track. Um, I would also say that, uh, I think I, where, where the the where the change happens out of out of the gate is if if a person is capable of taking a kind of decentered third person perspective on their experience, treating your anger in the same way that you treat any anything that you see outside, right? Taking this. You know, putting a space between you and that anger where you identify with the attention or the awareness. You are the observer and the emotion is an object of experience. But that, that's hard to do because we've spent a lifetime cultivating the habit of being our anger and being our sadness. And so I think if, if, we, if, if people can practice in a way that leads to that that realization that they can see their internal experiences in the same way as they see external events, that that's where the magic really starts to, 
to take shape. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that advice, Rob. And thank you for the whole talk. It was really interesting listening to you and uh, talking about these things. And um, so, so currently you're still, you're still working on, uh, I have to ask it differently. What is your current project that you're uh, working on? Oh, okay. So we're working on uh, a couple of projects. We're getting ready to collect data on a project looking at how mindfulness may influence a variety of different central and peripheral nervous system measures of res their response to risk and reward, particularly in gambling contexts. So we're, we're you know, going back to this idea of craving where we always go after what we want and we avoid what we don't want. Um, this is th those processes, how people deal with reward and how people deal with risk are central features in uh, pathological gambling. And um, so we're, we're going to be doing some work looking at how the brain responds to risk and reward and, if there, and see if there's any implications for pathological gambling treatment. We're also, I'm also doing some work that's, that's not as directly related to mindfulness, but we're looking, um, we're basically looking at whether we can construct a situation where um, a person is severely disgusted, right? So we're, we're, ba <laughs> we're, we're basically going to try to get them to eat uh, a silkworm pupa. And, um, <laughs> right? and uh, it's very fun. I, it feels... It's like you're in sixth grade again. <laughs> we put a situation where we see if, if despite them being disgusted, if mindfulness might influence how well they're able to let empathic responses overcome that disgust response. So we're kind of pitting empathy and disgust against each other, seeing if, if people who are more mindful can overcome the aversion of disgust with empathy. Those are two, two of the big ones. We're also doing some work with uh, neural mirroring, like looking at uh, people, how people's brain activity. Uh, so if my brain activity matches your brain activity, it's a marker of interpersonal closeness. And uh, we're, we're having people use intranasal oxytocin to try to induce neural mirroring in people by making them feel interpersonally close with oxytocin. Wow. Okay, well, that, that's super interesting stuff. I'm actually um, looking forward to hear more about that. <laughs> um, I will definitely uh, uh, follow your work. Uh, and thank you so much again for joining us. So it, was, uh, it was great talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you for having Thanks, Rob. Yes. If you enjoyed what Robert talked about, make sure to check out his website, mentioned in the description of this episode. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast with Tim Schofield. I think it's great to have more people on the podcast to together collectively talk about a certain theme. And in the future, you will see more people join me co-hosting, so to say, as we talk further about topics and themes. Shout out to our Patreons, Adrian Grenland, Kate Wolfhart, Chris, Justin Seal, Krish Shrikumar, Tim, Jupiter Girl X, Jay, Cat Bell, and Candace. Thank you very much for supporting us. Remember to subscribe to our podcast if you enjoyed this talk. And thank you for listening. Have a great day.